Hi, I'm Tyler Saltzi, pastor of Grace Bible Fellowship in Peru, Illinois. Our mission at Grace Bible Fellowship is to magnify the glory of the triune God in Christ Jesus by proclaiming God's word to advance the gospel in our lives and the world. We base who we are and what we do on the good news of Jesus. If you would like to find more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, you can visit our website at www.gbfperu.org. I'm so thankful you've come here to listen to God's Word proclaimed as we seek to understand it and be transformed by it. I hope you find this time meaningful, challenging, convicting, joyful, and even life-changing as we worship through the preaching of God's Word. morning I should like to draw our attention to God's word in the book of Exodus, beginning in chapter 2, verses 23 through chapter 3, verse 10. Before we, before we read that together, I was reminded of what we read in John chapter 16, verses 12 through 14. So we think about why we're here. What we're to be doing. And how we know if we are a spirit-filled church. John 16, 12 and following. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. Now listen carefully. He will glorify me for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. What does the Spirit of God do? He glorifies Jesus. How do we know if our church is spirit-filled? We will glorify Jesus. Notice how the Spirit does not draw attention to himself. The Spirit says, look at Jesus. Glorify him. He is the one where all of our attention should be drawn. And so is that why we are here today? to glorify Jesus because then we'll be those who are filled with the Spirit. So with that in mind, would you stand with me as we read God's Word together from Exodus chapter 2 beginning in verse 23 through chapter 3 verse 10. Hear the Word of the Lord. During those many days, the king, of Israel, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off of your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, 
I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, what better prayer that we could pray, Father, not our will, but yours be done. Even now, even today, even in our lives, may you have your perfect will done in our lives, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Have you experienced heartache? Not heartburn, heartache. A pain within your inner person, a hurt that is coming from your soul. If you've known heartache, why is that there? What has caused it? What would be your response? Pastor, let me tell you all that has happened to me. Pastor, you better believe that I have had heartache, and it all comes from out there. It all comes from the world. If everything in the world, if in all my relationships with my spouse, my children, my family, my friends, if all of my problematic circumstances, if all of my money problems, if all of my health problems, if all of my external problems just went away, then all of the heartache of life would go away as well. Then maybe you believe that your heartache would be relieved. Then maybe you would believe that the pain would subside. Let me tell you this morning, If all of the external problems in your life went away, it would not relieve your heartache. How can I say that with such certainty? Because the greatest problem in your life is not outside of you. The greatest problem in your life is inside of you. You have a problem in your heart because there is a heart problem. And what is the heart problem? The problem of our hearts is when our hearts are enslaved to sin. Listen to how the Bible teaches us about this. This is from John 8.35. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Romans 6.17 says, But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin. Romans 6.19 For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness. Romans 6.20, for when you were slaves of sin. Titus 3.3, 3, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led, us, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. 
This is where everyone starts. Everyone starts enslaved to sin. And this is how we come to our text this morning. Reading about the sons of Israel as those who were externally enslaved by the Egyptians. They were under harsh taskmasters. They were weighed down by great burdens. They were pushed and pushed and pushed to the brink of saying, I don't know how I can go on. Woe is me. I am completely undone. Why such hardship? Why such suffering? Why is there so much heartache and pain? Is God insensitive? Does God not care? Does he delight in wickedness? No, no, a thousand times no. God communicates an an external reality in history to depict an internal spiritual reality in the heart of every person. That's what God is doing. Why do we see Israel enslaved? Why do we see them going through this? Because this is every person. This is the plight of every man. The plight of the Hebrews mirrors the condition of all mankind who groan and suffer under the slavery of sin. Have you groaned or moaned or cried out to God because of your external problems? But have you ever groaned Have you ever cried out to God because of your slavery to sin? This is what the true Christian has done. You hear even some of those verses I read. You were once a slave, but you're no longer a slave. You were once enslaved to various passions. You once presented your body as slaves to impurity and lawlessness. But now what? Now the true Christian has been set free in Christ Jesus. For freedom, Christ has set you free. Then you are free indeed. Have you been confronted with your internal problem, your heart enslavement to sin? Has that burden become so great that you had to cry out to God? So great that you came to know your desperate state? And was it so great that you knew that there was nothing that you could do about it on your own? Did the heartache ever become so unbearable that that you realized it didn't matter what you did, you could never set yourself free? If you haven't, I pray that today you would see your enslavement to sin. Your need for the Lord Jesus Christ to come to your aid. That you would put your faith and trust in Him. And if you have, I pray that today you would rejoice in the one true and living God who has done this work in your heart and that you would see that it's Him initiating His plan for His people all those years ago in the land of Egypt. God initiated the plan of redemption by revealing Himself and as God reveals Himself, we cannot stay the same. So what effect does God's revelation of himself and the initiation of his plan have on us? Three ways this morning. You can follow along in your bulletin if this is helpful. But number one, count on God to act to relieve us of our condition. Count on God to act to relieve us of our condition. What's the very first event that takes place in our text this morning? You see it there in verse 23. During those many days, the king of Egypt died. The king of Egypt, who had been elevated to the level of God in the eyes of the Egyptians, the king who had caused so much pain in the people of Israel. Here, this simple phrase, during those many days, the king of Egypt died, tells us a truth that echoes down throughout the ages. All earthly kings will die. They will come to an end. They will not live forever. How great they think they they are, 
however much power they seek to attain, however high they try to exalt themselves, however much they pretend to be awesome and great, they will all come to an end. There is only one sovereign king who lives forever. There is only one king who is the true king. There is only one king whose dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. All pretend kings will perish. You might think that this is some great political statement. No, no, it's much more than that. This is a personal statement. If you are pretending to be king today, may you be toppled from your throne. May you be brought down because you are in a dangerous position. May the rightful king be ruling and reigning in your heart. King was no one other than our Savior, Jesus Christ. The sons of Israel might have thought that after the death of this king, they would get off. I mean, here's a king who's brought so much pain and heartache and enslavement and suffering. After the king dies, maybe there's a thought. Maybe it'll change. Maybe now it'll be different. Maybe now there won't be as much hardship. But this didn't happen. The people groaned because of their slavery. They cried out to help, for help. They cried to be rescued. This was a groaning of the heart. An aching that came from deep within their souls. They weren't faking it. They weren't just going through all of the motions. They were not manipulating God. They actually were pierced to the heart. And so what did they do? You see those things they did. They groaned. They cried out. You could say it very simply. They prayed. They prayed to God. Where else could they turn? To whom else could they go? What else could they do? They were at the end of their rope. They had nothing left. They were beyond desperate. They were in such anguish that the prayer, it appears, is barely articulate. It says they groaned, or they moaned, or they cried, or they shrieked. How much are they hurting? They can hardly form words to speak to God. Now, I'm not saying that we should not use words when we pray. I'm not saying that when we gather together tonight for prayer, that we should sit around and grunt to God. But let us at the same time think that when we pray to God, we must pray with hearts that are affected, not cold hearts, not hearts that are only going through the motions, not with words that we think will sound good to God or to others. But this is where prayer starts. This is where the prayer of salvation starts, with a complete and utter desperation, crying out and groaning to God. You even see this in the book of Romans, don't you? Romans 8, if you turn there for a moment. Romans 8, 26 through 30. Romans 8, 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with what? With groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. And so even through their groaning and through their crying, through their moaning and through their shrieking, God understood God heard their prayer. And now, now we're flooded with this word over and over and over again, God. As, we gone, as we've gone through the book of Exodus so far, 
God has only been mentioned three times. There at the end of chapter 1 with the midwives, God is mentioned three times. But other than that, it's all we've heard about from God. The life of Moses, chapter 2 and on, we haven't heard about God in his life at all. But now, three verses, God is spoken of five times. And the people's prayer, their cry for rescue from their slavery, came up to God like incense to the very throne of God. And then we see God take action. Four verbs are used with God as the subject. You see them there. God heard, God remembered, God saw, and God knew. God heard their prayers. God did not disregard them. God did not turn a deaf ear to them. He listened intently to their groaning. He understood what it meant. Listen, God heard their prayers. God hears our prayers. Pray because God will hear you. But God also remembered. Had God forgotten? Does, does God forget? It's not like they called God up on the phone and all of a the sudden they jogged God's memory. He didn't say, ah, oh, you know what, I had completely forgotten about you, Israel. Maybe I should do something. God doesn't forget. Do you feel like God has forgotten you? He has not forgotten you. He remembers. And his remembering is this. He is thinking about something on purpose as a conscious decision of his will. So God's remembering is him thinking about something on purpose as a conscious decision of his will. And so what was it that God was purposefully thinking about here? He was thinking about his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. God had made a promise to these patriarchs, a promise of offspring, of land, of blessing, a promise of salvation. And God remembered this because he is the God who keeps every one of his promises. He is the faithful God. He is never faithless. He never fails. God accomplishes everything precisely how he wants to accomplish it. He never has to make lemonade out of lemons. God remembered his promise so as to faithfully keep his promise exactly as he meant to when he made that promise. So he remembered. He heard, he remembered, and he saw. God saw the sons of Israel. He saw their condition. He saw what they were going through. He saw their burdens. Can you see God? No, I cannot see God, but he always sees me. Now, that could be very terrifying, that God always sees you, everything that you do, everything that you say, everything that you think. God sees you, but God also sees you in your suffering. God also sees you in your difficulty. God also sees you in your hardship. And that should be a comforting thought, that the almighty God of the universe sees you. And then what does it say? And finally, God knew. This idea of knowing is not a mere intellectual knowledge. It is a personal, intimate knowledge. It's a knowing through a relationship. But what is it that God knew? It doesn't say here, right? You get to verse 25, and God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. It begs the question, God knew what? What did God know? 
Maybe we should let verse 7 of chapter 3 help us. There it says, God says, I know their sufferings. What God is this who would have such an intimate understanding of the suffering of his people and what they are going through? It is through his actions, God's actions, that we see the wonderful and mysterious compassion of God. And his compassion is not like our compassion. We think of compassion and we feel sorry for someone. We are sad that they might be hurting or in trouble or experiencing hardship or tribulations. But does our compassion ever lead us to do something? That's what God's compassion does. Here is the divine compassion of God. And through all of these actions, we are counting on God to act, to do something. We are sitting with anticipation on the edges of our seats, waiting and wanting God to act. But we must know that when God acts, it will relieve these people from their miserable condition, just like God acted through His Son, Jesus Christ, to relieve us from our miserable condition. And yet, while we have a transcendent God who is far above us, we also have an imminent God who is near and personal and who cares for us. A God who would send his own son into the world and a God who would know our sufferings in an intimate way through his son. One who is able to sympathize with us in our weaknesses. Listen to Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Do you hear it there? We have a great high priest who is able to sympathize with us in our weaknesses and was one who was tempted in, what does it say? In every respect. Have you known temptations? Have you known struggles and difficulties? All of those, every one of those, every respect, Christ was tempted as we have been tempted, yet he did not sin. And it's through his work that he relieves us out of our miserable condition of enslavement to sin and brings us to the very throne of God that we might, what? Find help in our time of need. Number two, trust God to reveal himself and direct how we are to approach him. Trust God to reveal himself and direct how we, to, how we are to approach him. Can I rewind for a moment? Let me just back up. Before we get into the second point, I want to take a second and just rewind. I'm sorry. I got ahead of myself. I, I want us to think about the perspective of the Israelites for a moment. They groaned, and they cried out to God, and God... God heard, God remembered, God saw, and God knew. And we, as the reader, have God's perspective, don't we? God's, God's, God's acting, God's going to do something. What was the perspective of the Israelites? What's happening, God? We're crying out to you. We're groaning. We're under this burden of sin. God's doing something. But as of yet... Israel did not see what that was. They did not know. So what does that mean for you and for your life? Why is it that we can count on God to act? Because sometimes we might cry out to God. We might call out to Him. It may look like God's not doing anything. But would we say we trust God is working? 
We trust that he will do, will do something. We trust that he will come to our aid. That he will help us. So if this morning you've been crying out to God and it looks like he is doing nothing, take heart. He is there. He is active. He will come to your aid. Okay, now number two. Trust God to reveal himself and direct how we are to approach him. Trust God to reveal himself and direct how we are to approach him. Our last encounter with Moses took place when he was 40 years old. Now, another 40 years have passed. And that number 40 is important in the Bible. It's associated with times of testing and trial. So it rained 40 days and 40 nights while Noah was in the ark. Moses now has gone through two 40-year periods in his life. We're at his, in his 80th year here as we come to him in Exodus 3, verse 1. Israel would wander in the, elder, in the wilderness 40 years. Jesus was in the wilderness for 40 days when he was tempted by Satan. And so this 40, this number 40, is often identified with trials and testing that we go through. And so Moses now, 80 years old, experiences something truly amazing. Here he is, a shepherd, keeping watch over his father-in-law's flock. And he led that flock deep into the wilderness into a region called Horeb. And it says he led his flock to the very mountain of God. In a short time, we will see this mountain again. The exact same mountain where the people of Israel will worship, the mountain known as Mount Sinai. And so here it is, this region of Horeb, and particularly this mountain called Sinai, where Moses is keeping watch over the flock. And the most amazing, supernatural, miraculous event happens. Here it is, the angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in the flame of fire in the midst of a bush. Who is this angel of the Lord? He is closely associated with the very presence of God. In fact, in fact, a few verses, it will simply refer to the Lord. The Lord said, I believe perhaps the best interpretation of this is that this is the pre-incarnate Son of God. This interpretation does not start with me. In fact, one reformer, John Calvin, says this about the angel of the Lord. The ancient teachers of the church have rightly understood that the eternal Son of God is so called the angel of the Lord in respect to his office as mediator, which he figuratively bore from the beginning, although he really took it upon himself only at his incarnation. And so I think that's helpful. This is not something new. The church has been teaching this for a long time. But why? Why? If the pre-incarnate Son has come in this flame of fire, why this designation as a flame of fire? Well, this is the very presence of God. How did God make his presence known when he made the covenant with Abraham? This is what Genesis 15, 17 says. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a, smock, a smoking fire pot and flaming torch passed between the pieces. There it is, smoking fire pot, flaming torch, the very presence of God. And what would it lead the sons of Israel by night when they came out of Egypt? It would be a pillar of fire. And so what happens when Moses brings the people to Mount Sinai? It says it was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended upon it in fire. And so we're being trained as we read this, that this fire is the very presence of the Lord. He is a fire that provides light in the darkness, a light that causes all of the darkness to flee away. And in other places in the Bible, we read things like this, Deuteronomy 9.3, Know therefore today that he goes before you as a consuming fire, the Lord your God. Or Hebrews 12.29, For our God is a consuming fire. Yes, our Lord is a consuming fire. What a truth. And yet... What did Moses experience? The bush was burning, but the bush was not burning. Yes, there were flames in this bush, but the flames did not consume this bush. Truly, what a sight to behold. Moses had to get a closer look. He had to know why this bush was not burned, why it was not consumed. 
There is no natural explanation for this. This is the supernatural, divine presence of God, and it tells us something about this God. It reveals here in this burning bush that God is a God of grace. Why would I say that? The God whose presence is fire, the God whose presence is a consuming fire, did not consume the bush. And so, where is this grace coming into play? God is going to lead his people out of Egypt as a consuming fire, yet what? His people will not be consumed. His people will be saved. He will care for his own. He will not consume them. And when the Lord saw that Moses turned to see this miracle, the Lord speaks to him like he calls to his servants in this repetition. Moses, Moses. And Moses responds, here I am, just like Abraham responded, just like Jacob responded, just like Samuel will respond. Moses responds with humility and willingness, but the call does not come without warning. What does the Lord say at the very beginning? Don't come near Moses. Stop right there. Stop dead in your tracks. Not another step. You need to know something, Moses. You are in the presence of of a holy God. Take off your sandals. For the place where you are standing is holy ground. Let's clarify. Moses does not take off his sandals because there is anything special in the dirt itself. The only reason the ground is holy is because the presence of the holy God is there. God reveals himself to be holy. And no one is able to come into the presence of a holy God. God's holiness speaks to the fact that he is completely set apart from everything that is unclean, everything that is impure, everything that is sinful. It is the very holiness of God that puts the sinner in danger. The sinner cannot approach the holy God. As one theologian says about the Lord's holiness, it is not a passive attribute but an active force, embracing all that conforms to it and destroying all that offends it. God's holiness means that he is completely dedicated to himself. He is dedicated to his purity. He is dedicated to his glory. He is dedicated to his plan. He is dedicated to himself. And people would say, what kind of God is this who would be dedicated to himself? Is this some sick egomaniac who is completely dedicated to himself? How would you respond if someone said that to you? You worship an egomaniac of a God. I would say, no, he is the almighty God. The all-knowing, all-powerful the everywhere present, the gracious, the merciful, the compassionate, the loving, the transcendent, the imminent, the eternal, the infinite, and the sovereign Lord. For him to be dedicated to anything or anyone other than himself would be to deny himself, and God can never deny himself. If God is the greatest being in all of the universe, then it only makes sense that God is dedicated to himself 100%. That's the God that I worship. He is the holy, holy, holy God, the thrice holy God. And when you know the holiness of God, you respond like the prophet Isaiah, Woe is me, for I am undone. You want to know how sinful you are, you will know it if you are in the presence of the holy God. No wonder Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Because he knew that no one could look upon God and live. And do you know how Moses knew that? I don't think it's because Moses read it in the Bible. I think it's because you know it intuitively when you are in the presence of a holy God. You know it. You cannot look upon that holiness and live when you are in God's presence.
What do we think about when we think about church for a moment? How do we evaluate church, even? Have you ever visited a church? As you're driving home. Maybe today you'll do this as you drive home. How was church today? How do we evaluate church? Did I like the music? Was the pastor funny? No, he was not funny. Did it fill me up? Did it fill up my tank? You ever heard someone talk like that? Do we ever evaluate church by saying the holy God was there? That we met with God and His holiness and He was lifted up and He was exalted as holy. Then it's all those other things. Music, the entertainment, the funniness of the pastor, the stories that he might tell, whatever it is, they all, all fade away. Is God held up as holy? Is his holiness made known? A church that does not worship a holy God does not, new, does not truly know God It does not truly understand sin, and it cannot comprehend the need that everyone has for Christ. And so it becomes a self-help, self-rehabilitation, self-glorifying synagogue of Satan. If you don't have the holiness of God, if you don't worship and serve the holy God, then all you are left with is worshiping something or someone other than God. Do you, do you hold God as holy? Let's test it, shall we? If Jesus Christ were to walk through these doors this morning in all of his glory and all of his holiness, how would you respond? How many times do we say, there are so many questions I would ask him, so many things that I want to know. No, Jesus Christ walked through those doors this morning. We all would be underneath our chairs thinking about all the things that we wish we had done differently. That's the holiness of God. Who can stand in his holy place? That's what David asks. Who can stand in the presence of a holy God? How is it that we can know this holy God? How is it that we're supposed to approach this holy God? The only way that we can ever approach the holy God is as those who are drenched and dripping with the very blood of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 10, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter, what? The holy places. How? By the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he has opened for us, through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. As those who have been bought with Christ's righteous blood, we no longer know death. We know the living and true God, and so we know life. That's why... That's why he says this next. This is what God says next. He said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Do you know that Jesus Christ refers to this verse in Matthew? The Sadducees come to Jesus and they say, is there a resurrection, Jesus? Basically, paraphrasing. And Jesus says, don't you know what's been written? Don't you know know that, that God is the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob, then what does Jesus say? He is not the God of the dead. He is the God of the living. And so I I think, I'm taking this to be, this is one of the main reasons that God is saying this. He wants us to know he is not the God of the dead. He is the God of the living. 
You are able to come into the holy presence of God and you are able to remain alive and there is this uh, coming alive that happens now through Jesus Christ and there is this hope of the resurrection of the dead. And just like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, they are not dead, they are alive. They have the hope of the resurrection, just like all those who now believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So hear this call. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, what? You will be saved. And being saved, you're able to approach a holy God and remain alive because you are alive in Christ. Number three, expect God to come down to deliver his people. Expect God to come down to deliver his people. There's that old saying, whatever goes up must come down. It's the opposite for God. When God comes down, he must bring up. We see that in our verses. Verse 8, And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land. Moses, or, or God reiterates to Moses what he has seen. He knows the suffering of his people. Nothing what has happened in Egypt has escaped from the Lord. And so now he promises, I will come down. God would descend from his holy heaven for the sake of his people. And something similar happened in Genesis 18. There was another outcry, an outcry that made its way to God. This crying out came up to God because of the atrocities being carried out in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. God, it says there, sees that their sin was very grave. And so he says, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. God comes down. He sees the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. And judgment falls upon those cities for their sexual sins. But God delivers Lot and his two daughters from the downpour of sulfur and fire that he rained down upon those cities in judgment. God comes down again to deliver his people out of the hands of the Egyptians. There can be no doubt who is the main deliverer in the book of Exodus is God. God is the deliverer of his people. God is the one who saves. God is the one who rescues. And so it must be the Lord who comes down but he does so in order to bring up. He is going to bring up his people out of the land. He is going to bring them into the promised land. He is going to do what he promised in Genesis 15. Then the Lord said to Abraham, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions." There it is, God promising to Abram all those years beforehand what's going to happen. And now he comes to Moses and says, yes, I'm going to do it. I'm going to bring them up to a land flowing with milk and honey. Shows the prosperity, the abundance of the land that God is going to bring them into. God was not going to bring them up to some second-rate land. No, this is the good land promised. A land whose abundance would provide more than they ever need. A land that already contained and sustained six nations. What a promise. And this expectation, this expectation of God coming down to bring up is the same expectation we have when we come to Jesus Christ. He is God in the flesh who has come down, descended from his heavenly abode with his Father. He has come down to deliver his people finally and forever. He has come down to bring us up. He came down to resurrect us up from the dead, to bring us up out of the domain of darkness, to bring us into a new land, a new creation, a new heaven, and a new earth 
where the abundance of provision will be beyond our comprehension or our ability to ever exhaust. A place where we will dwell again in the midst of a holy God, dwell in the midst of all His glory, being brought up finally in the fullness of all of His blessing. Jesus, Jesus has come down to us to save us from our slavery to sin. He's heard our groaning. He's heard our cry. He's come down to save us from the oppression of death. He has come to us who were weak and ungodly sinners. He's come down to deliver us and rescue us, to suffer once for sins the righteous for the unrighteous so that he might bring us to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for the revelation of a holy God. We thank you for the salvation that comes through Jesus Christ. Who can ascend the holy hill of the Lord? The only one who has pure hands and a pure heart. That one first must be your holy son, Jesus Christ, on our behalf. And so I pray this morning, Father, if there's someone here who does not know you, that today they would put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Today they would know the desperate state of slavery to sin. That they would turn from their sin, repent of their sin, put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, confess that He is Lord with their mouths, believe in their heart you raised Him from the dead and so be saved. Father, we know that there must there must be conviction of sin for there to be salvation and forgiveness from sin. Father, I pray for those that know you this morning here that they would find comfort and joy that comes from a holy God and that we would praise you as those who are dressed in Christ's righteous robes and who are now covered and bought with his blood. Nothing in our hands we bring. Simply to the cross we cling. Father, if there's someone here this morning who's doubting, who's experiencing difficulty and pain, who's experiencing doubt or despair, I pray that they would run to Jesus. I pray that they would find Him to be their refuge and that He would give them hope. Pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.